7. Uh, Again, as we continue in this series in the book of Hebrews, uh, we will read the whole chapter, so I will not ask you to stand for all of that. Uh, But if you would, uh, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. 
because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thus, God's holy word made the spirit write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. In sentences that can be confusing and in logic and thought and development that can that can seem uh, distracting and, and naughty and tied up on itself from time to time. Would you make this your word clear so that not just that we might understand it better, although that would be great, too. But more so for our confidence in our savior. Would you use this passage to strengthen our hope and our endurance and our confidence in Christ as our high priest? For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. So I need you to, uh, well, for some of you, this is going to be longer ago. For some of you, it's entirely possible that this is within the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't remember exactly when... um, some of the properties of math get taught. Now, for some of you, you're already like, hold on, I'm done, right? I need you to come back, speak English. Don't be using this math stuff. So I don't, I'm not entirely certain when the properties of math are taught. I'm guessing middle school-ish. So perhaps for some of you, this is not all that long ago. For others of you, it's been a year or two. But if you remember back, there are these properties of, of math that you learn, the associative and the distributive and the commutative properties of math. And they tell you things about how you can do math and the rules you can use and apply and that sort of thing. My favorite is the one that actually has a name and quite honestly probably doesn't need one. Uh, because in reality, I think it's super obvious. And, it, and it's the kind that we might even forget about because it's so logical, it's so painfully evident that we think, why does the transitive property need a name at all? You're going, hold on, I don't know what that is. The transitive property basically says that if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then necessarily A is greater than C. See, it's really simple. It's obvious. But the reality is, that's the logic of Hebrews 7. That's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is using. He's applying the transitive property of math, which I'm guessing may or may not have even existed yet, 
as a name. But he's applying the the same sort of concept to the priesthood and and applying that transitive property to Jesus. And so the reality is our outline is going to be a four-part transitive property of math outlined. And I couldn't be more excited than that. First, I want you to see that Melchizedek is like Jesus, verses 1 through 3. And and I need to get a question out of the way, because some of you are wondering, some of you have asked, and it's entirely possible that I have said to you before that Melchizedek is some sort of form of pre-incarnate Christ. I've grown. I've changed. I'm, I'm landing somewhere else. And Hebrews 7.3 is why. You see, resembling isn't being. Because you notice, see, that would be the identity property of math. Whoa, hold on. But notice that the writer says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Resembling, being like someone, is not the same thing as being that someone. That's the identity property. If A is A then A is A. And so the, the point is, the writer seems to be indicating that Melchizedek is not really a pre-incarnate Christ, but is an actual person who actually lived at the time of Abraham. And, and in ways, and as we will see in just a minute, he resembles the Son of God. He resembles Jesus. So Melchizedek is like Jesus. Well, now you've got to ask the question, well, how is that? Or for that matter, why would anybody ever think that Melchizedek was essentially a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, of the second person of the Trinity? Well, the writer tells us exactly how Melchizedek is like Jesus. He makes several comparisons. Notice first, his name means king of righteousness. Or my king is righteous, if you want to get... It's literally the, the word for king and the word for righteous smushed together to make a name. And so his name is literally king of righteousness or my king is righteous. That's a, it's a title that reminds us of Jesus. We, we're aware of the righteousness of Christ. And for that matter... And we saw this in our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago that that not only is it Melchizedek's name, but it's his office, his title, his position as king of Salem that also is like Jesus. Because Salem is just the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, which is also found in Jerusalem. And so Salem is as a city, as a place, is associated by some with the location of Jerusalem. And so the writer of Hebrews wants you to see these connections between Melchizedek and Jesus, both king of righteousness and king of peace. Maybe you're thinking, hold on, those 
I've heard those terms like in the same place before talking about Jesus because the reality is almost inevitably at some point during the month of December or a Christmas Eve service or somewhere along the way, you, you run across Isaiah 9. And then the names given to Jesus. And you read in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with Justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We know Jesus to be altogether righteous and and to bring peace when he comes. In fact, we Paul writes at the beginning of Romans five. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings peace. And righteousness where he reigns. And so in that, Melchizedek is like Jesus. But then there's another way that that Melchizedek is like Jesus. Notice that the writer of Hebrews tells us that he had no, verse 3, he had no father or mother. Now, I don't think that means he had no father or mother. I think what it means is, as you're reading through Genesis, nobody ever talks about his father or his mother. Nowhere does his death ever show up. In fact, the reality is, there's only three people in all the Bible who mention Melchizedek. It's, he shows up in Genesis 14, written by Moses. He shows up in Psalm 110, written by David. And he shows up in Hebrews, and we've kind of seen him mentioned a couple of times, only now he's sort of dealt with. Nowhere do you learn his genealogy. Nowhere do you learn his ancestry. Nowhere do you know anything about his momonym or his death or whatever happens to him or where he goes. You learn absolutely nothing. And here's the thing. You go home this afternoon in, in all your copious free time. And in your Sabbath rest, you read the first 14 chapters of Genesis. Everybody has a mother. Everybody has a father. Everybody has a genealogy. And everybody dies. Except one person. There are, there are genea- several genealogies given in the first 14 chat. In fact, there's some of them are short. Some of them are brief. Some of them are just enough to clear the deck so that, you know, Terah has died, which means Abraham is now the father of his ancestry and God's working with Abraham. That's all the genealogy you needed. You don't have that for Melchizedek. And so the writers using this sort of Jewish literary device that says, as you're reading along, Literally everybody in Genesis has parents. You know how long they lived. They, you know who they trace back to. You can go back to which son of Noah. You can do all sorts of things except for one person who shows up out of nowhere and then disappears into oblivion. 
just as, as suddenly and as quickly as he appeared. And so part of the writer's point here is to say the fact that you have no ancestral record of Melchizedek is weird. It's unusual. It, it doesn't happen with anybody else in the Old Testament. And so Melchizedek is like the Son of God in that he has no father or mother. And you say, well, hold on a second, time out, because I'm pretty sure I've read the best Christmas pageant ever. I'm pretty sure I've seen live nativities. And there's always somebody playing Mary and Joseph. Notice the language of the writer of Hebrews. Notice he uses resembling the Son of God. He doesn't say resembling Jesus in this instance. Yes, we know that the Son has the, a father, but he has no beginning. And he's not, he's begotten eternally. And now you're getting into the Nicene Creed, and I can't, I don't have the brain, I need more coffee for some of those things. But so the picture then is that the writer of Hebrews wants you to see that Melchizedek is like Jesus. He resembles the Son of God. Second, Melchizedek is greater than Levi, verses 4 through 10. Uh, and then the writer here, the writer kind of combines sort of two lines of reasoning. One of them has to do with blessing. The, the greater blesses the lesser, verse 7. And, and I know those are not words we like in our world today. We're not talking quality. We're not talking value before God. We're talking role and relationship. Parents inherently, by definition, are greater than their children. Not because they're better, but because of their office. And so when Abraham returns from war, he bumps into Melchizedek. And you have no idea where Melchizedek just shows up on the scene. And Abraham gives him a tithe, a tenth of all that he's uh, of the spoils of war. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. And so in that relationship. In the connection between Melchizedek and Abraham, Melchizedek is the greater. Abraham is the lesser. That's one line of thought in verses 4 through 10. The other line has to do with the tribe of Levi. At the time that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, there was no Israel. There was no Jacob. The, the grandson of Abraham, who, in fact, for that matter, there was no Isaac. Abraham had no children at all at this point. And so uh, all of, of Abraham's descendants are, genetically speaking, still in Abraham at this point. And so it sounds, even verse 9, almost like an afterthought that the writer goes, well, hold on. You, in fact, you could even argue that Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Why? Because Levi, grand, grandson, great-grandson, I can't do it that quickly in my head, great-grandson, 
of Abraham is still in Abraham. Which means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Abraham has no descendants. And once he does, the, of the twelve tribes, it's the tribe of Levi that's given the priestly tabernacle responsibilities. And so the, the law of Moses gives to Levi and his descendants, uh, actually kind of beginning with Aaron, uh, the, the office of priest. And, and at this point, you're now 400 plus years after Levi himself. But the, it's that family, that tribe, that rather than getting an inheritance, gets this office of priesthood and, and tabernacle responsibilities. And because the descendants of Levi are the priests, the rest of the tribes are bringing to Levi the tithe. Levi lived off of the tithes of his brothers, if you will. So the writer's reasoning goes like this. All the descendants of Abraham pay paid tithes to Levi. Levi, through Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. The greater blesses the lesser. The lesser pays tribute to the greater. <clears throat> Melchizedek is like Jesus. Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Third, to work backwards, Jesus is like Melchizedek, verses 11 through 24. And I know that sounds redundant, but the writer seems to now sort of turn the tables, if you will, and examine the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus from the opposite sort of direction. Notice in verse 1, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And we read that in chapter 14. So... How is Melchizedek a priest if he's not a descendant of Levi? That's the heart of the matter. That's where the writer sort of picks up. This is the central question in Hebrews 7. Melchizedek, according to the law, is not supposed to be a priest. Well, hold on. The, the law of Moses wasn't even given yet. We're hundreds of years before that when Melchizedek and Abraham get together. How is it that Melchizedek is priest of God Most High? It appears that there are believers. People in the world at the time of Abraham, but not of the genealogical line of Abraham, who are trusting in Christ and Melchizedek is their priest. They are trusting in the promised Messiah. They're believing the gospel. Now, you do realize it's easy for us at times to read the Bible and think when we get to like Abraham to think like, well, that's the only guy on earth except for whoever I read about that he bumps into. You don't read anything about Ham and Jephthah's descendants, right? I mean, Noah and Mrs. Noah and his three sons and their sons, 
get off the ark and then the Bible traces Shem's line. Why? Because the Bible is tracing the line of the promise. What promise? Well, the promise made back in Genesis 3 that God's going to send a descendant of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and free his people from sin. That's the focus of the Bible. That doesn't mean that there's nobody else on earth at the time of Abraham. And it seems that Melchizedek serves as priest of people who actually are looking for that promised redeemer. It just so happens they aren't in the line of promise that the Bible traces. In other words, Melchizedek is serving as priest before the law, outside of the law, not because of the law. How then does he have this position except that it is by promise? It's by calling. It's by the calling of God on Melchizedek among those people. Anyone anywhere who is saved is so because they're trusting in the promised Redeemer. And that seems to be Melchizedek and some of the people with him. We just finished Exodus not that long ago. And we saw in Exodus that the law gives the priesthood to Levi and his descendants. And the reality is you couldn't take a test and become a priest. You couldn't go to school and learn to become a priest. If your dad was a priest, you would be a priest. If you wanted to be a priest but were from a different tribe, you couldn't say, well, hold on, I've got a degree in priesthoodness. I've gone and gotten a degree and some education. I've taken a test. And can I just you know, take these tests and get, get licensed and, and serve? It didn't work that way. It was purely genealogical. It was, if your dad was a priest, you were a priest. And you couldn't otherwise get that job. Which means that there's this problem with this law-instituted office. Verse 11 tells us it's imperfect. It's an imperfect system. And in fact, it's an impermanent system. It's a system that from its very beginning never did some of the things we want to attribute to it. We even made the comment as we were working through Exodus. Moses brought Israel out of Egypt. But he couldn't get Egypt out of the people. The priest could offer sacrifices on your behalf. But that sacrifice would merely satisfy divine justice for a time because you would have to come back and do it again. And so it was imperfect, but it was also impermanent. The, plea, the, the priest had to be replaced. He would die. He would retire. He would reach an age where he couldn't do it anymore. And so he would die. And so a new one would come along. And, and he kept getting replaced over and over and over again. It was imperfect. 
and it was impermanent. But the law gave the priesthood to Levi. And therein lies the problem with Melchizedek and Jesus. Neither of them are Levites. Melchizedek predates Levi by years. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Levi. No. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's from the wrong tribe. How does he get to be a priest? How does he get to serve in that office? Well, it's, it goes back to what David wrote in Psalm 110. And it's why the writer quotes it twice. You're a priest. Psalm 110 is all about Jesus. And he writes, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The son of God who comes is going to serve as a priest like Melchizedek, not like Levi. By oath, by promise, by covenant, not by law. The oath replaces the law. The promise, the covenant replaces the law. And so the priest of the law is replaced by a greater priest. Those priests, like those priests, Jesus also died. Unlike those priests, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Unlike those priests, death couldn't reign over them. Unlike the priests of old, Jesus didn't stay buried. He has no ending. He, as our priest, is so permanently. His priesthood is forever. In fact, you read in verse 25, Consequently, because his priesthood is both perfect and permanent, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a permanent priesthood. It's a perfect priesthood because nobody has to come back and offer another sacrifice. He was offered once for all for all who look to him in faith. There's not a new priest to replace him. There's not a new or, or better or second sacrifice. He can do what the law couldn't. Jesus does what Aaron could not do. Moses got the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't get Egypt out of the people. Is that not the picture of our sanctification? Not only does Jesus free us from the penalty of sin and our justification, he is about the business of freeing us from the power of sin. That's our sanctification. That's our growth. He can do what the law and what the old covenant system and the Old Testament priest couldn't do. Which means, finally, the priesthood of Christ is better than the priesthood of Levi. Notice verses 26 and 27. Jesus is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. He has no need to go into the Holy of Holies 
And first, before he can offer a sacrifice for you, offer a sacrifice for his own sin, the way the high priest did. No, instead, he goes in merely as the sacrifice and as the priest with the sacrifice for you. He has no need for his own sin to be atoned. He has no sin. And with that, you and I have the confidence that he can save. Not mostly. Not until he has to come back and offer himself again. Not for a year until uh, the Day of Atonement next year when we all have to do this all over again. Not until tomorrow when you sin again and therefore have to come back with another lamb or a goat. Not until you you do something bad enough that you realize, oh, I guess I probably need to go sacrifice an animal for this. No, he's, he's not able to save a little or mostly. He's able to save to the uttermost. The deepest, darkest part of you that you think is unforgivable is covered by uttermost. The deepest, darkest person in the world that you think is unsavable covered by uttermost. Jesus can save totally and completely. That's the difference between his priesthood and that of the old covenant. That's what makes Jesus better than Levi. It's the fact that in Christ, we have the expectation, not just that the penalty of sin no longer hangs over us, that the power of sin is being rooted out of us, but that we expect there's a day coming when the very presence of sin will be removed completely from us. No lamb, no bull, no Aaron, no Levi could do any of that. Are you looking to Christ? Are you trusting in Him alone for your salvation? He alone is the perfect, permanent priest. If you are looking to the law for your deliverance, you cannot be delivered. You're looking in the wrong place. If you want to be saved by the law, you have to be kept by the law. If you want to be saved by the law, you have to persevere in the law. You cannot and will not be saved. But if you're saved by grace through faith in the perfect sacrifice, then the perfect priest prays for you. You tell people, I will pray for you. And you don't. You might, but you forget. You say, I will pray for you. And and a lot of us have learned, if we don't do it right then and there, I've lied. He always lives to make intercession for you. The perfect priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, is praying for you. If that isn't comfort, if that isn't hope, if that isn't encouragement to press on in the faith, I don't know what is. That's a prayer that can and must be heard. Let's pray together.
Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this comfort, this hope, this, this sure and certain promise that the Son prays for us even now, interceding for His people, those whom He has redeemed, those looking to Him for salvation, looking to Him and Him alone for their deliverance from sin. He prays for our perseverance, for our preservation, for our pressing on in the gospel. Father, would you use that truth to equip us to serve you, to strengthen our faith, to embolden our evangelism, to comfort us in our hurt, to give us hope for the life to come. Through Christ, we ask it. Amen.